I have entitled my message, Truly Eating the Flesh of Jesus. If that sounds like a strange title, it's because it's a strange text. On the other hand, to make it a bit more practical and realizing who I'm talking to here and how many of you with our past surveys, I know how many of you grew up Catholic. At least half, if not three quarters of the people that come to this church and have a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. The subtitle is Applying the Scripture to the Mass. Or you could say the truth about the Mass. In this passage, in John 6, 41 through 59, I want to read through it. I'm not going to go line by line, word by word. I want to really deal with the overall heart of the passage. Here, Jesus, as you know, he fed the multitudes on the hillside. They received bread from heaven. It was a wonderful, miraculous experience. They followed him around the lake and... He went on to continue to speak to them the next day. So, of course, then the theme of bread goes along with the whole feeding of the multitudes. He goes in his preaching to them from very straight talk to symbolic talk, from just straight statements about who he is. As you see in chapter 5, you come into chapter 6, and he begins to talk symbolically as the bread of life. And he is giving them some very critical things to understand. As you know, this is the sermon that really in verse 60, they all turn away, almost all of them in the crowd. It's the sermon that basically cost Jesus everybody in his church except a handful at that time. Bear in mind, when you read disciple in the Bible, it doesn't always refer to one of the twelve, or the eleven being the true. Disciple is just a learner. If somebody that follows along after Jesus on the pages of the Bible and learns from him. So that when you read at that time, many of his disciples followed him no more. They turned away. It doesn't mean the 11. And it doesn't mean they were all real Christians that went and backslid. It simply means they decided they no longer wanted to learn from this man. And one of the things I find out in studying this passage is how often... And we'll get into it more next time. But how often people don't want Jesus to be definitive with them. They don't mind following as long as it it can remain fairly fuzzy with enough lack of definition and clarity to give them room for a great deal of self-interpretation. You understand what I mean about that? That's why the fuzzy, uncertain sound churches that aren't definitive in the teaching of the Word. They leave so much room for self-interpretation that pretty much people can be comfortable to listen to what is said and then design internally their own interpretation of what it means to be a Christian. And thus they can stay very, very comfortable with a very unbiblical view of Christianity and tragically left outside the kingdom, outside of redemption. Jesus deals with all of that here. Now, in verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Speaking of, of course, the great elective decrees of God in eternity past. And we spent several, seven or eight messages on that in First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So I'm not going to really replow that ground. You can get those tapes if you weren't with us. But he's speaking of the work of God in eternity past and election. God working by His Spirit and calling people. That effectual call of Romans 8, 29, 30. And so he says, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. It's an awakening by God in their hearts to recognize him as Messiah. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now that is crystal clear, isn't it? That's not symbolical. That isn't figurative. It's just straight talk. He who believes in me has everlasting life. So he goes from plain, practical language. And he becomes now, he goes back again into his figure of speech with the bread, where he has been already. And he says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Now he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. Verse 47. He adds to that, I am the bread of life. Then he says... I am the living bread, verse 51, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, at this point, the Jews are really offended. And it says in verse 52, Therefore they quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, He gets even more pointed with it. And he says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he, he drops the bread thing. Now it's, oh, you're upset. Let me make it even clearer. Talk about eating the bread. Let me make it even clearer. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You remember how I was upset that one morning when my wife got up early and I was contemplating this because I had to teach the people? You remember that? Well, I mean, at first glance, you can understand why, can't you? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And, and unless, it's very narrow, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, as we look at all of this, I just want to draw basically two main thoughts. One 
is simply understanding our Lord's invitation. It's an invitation. Eternal life. But it's been so misunderstood. I want to see if we can't just simply understand it. And secondly, how do you respond to this invitation? Once you understand it, what do you do with it? So understanding our Lord's invitation, these statements in verse 53 down to verse 56 have been misunderstood by so many people. We must realize, to begin with, this is not to be taken literally. I mean, as you look at Jesus and He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, obviously it's not to be taken literally. Now, that may seem obvious to a lot of us. But I have found along the way that if you grow up with an understanding... You can look at the plain, clear truth, what would otherwise, and to others, be simple and clear and plain. You can look at the plain, clear truth, and because you've got this teaching woven through the fabric of your being, from the time you were old enough to understand and learn anything, you can stare it right in the face and not believe it. You can stare it right in the face and yet cling to what you were taught, even though in the face of Scripture it is absolutely clear that what you were taught was wrong. The thing we need to understand is this is not to be taken literally. Now, we, we can come to that conclusion very quickly. You look at the Jews, they rejected Christ because they took it literally. You understand, he says to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, they're dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then he says to them in verse 53, most assuredly, if you're getting angry at this, he says, I want to make it crystal clear, you heard me right. So just in case you wonder if you heard me right, you heard me right, most assuredly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Then down in verse 60, look down there. Therefore, many of His disciples when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And they rejected him and they left. They took him literally. So many of these Jewish people were so hardened in their hearts. You know, when you see them walk away, don't forget, who is it that walked away? All the people that ate miracle bread from heaven. You know, if you've ever gotten the idea that what we need is more signs and wonders and miracles and we'd have a lot more converts, these are people that ate miracle bread from heaven, a miracle fish, and they literally put it into their bodies and ate it. And they walked away the next day when he called them to real commitment. So if you ever think, what we really need is more signs and wonders, and if you've been tempted to run after all that stuff... Remember the crowd that walked away from Jesus, who each had their own personal miracle that day on the hillside when he fed the 5,000 and all the women and children with those men. So here they walk away. 
Why? Because they're blind. You see, they understood it literally. And to them, okay, now understand the mind of a Jew. Raised from the time they were old enough to learn. They have been taught, you do not eat the flesh that has the blood in it. In other words, one of the most forbidden things to the Jew would be to effectively drink blood. So nothing, you want to shock a Jew, tell him, here, drink some blood. Or, here, I found this cow, you know, he only died five minutes ago and I cooked him up, but all the blood was left in it, didn't drain any of it out. You want to gross him out, you just say, here, eat this meat and, and drink the blood with it. So when Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you want to get Jews quarreling, you just tell them that. Don't forget it's a Jew telling them this. Because they were so far as they'd been following Jesus along, so far from really listening to his message. When he says this, rather than reasoning it through, Logically, understanding there's got to be something else he means by this, they simply took it at face value. You know why? It was either take it at face value or believe what he was really saying. And because they didn't want to believe what he was really saying, which is you've got to become clear, you've got to become focused, and you cannot be uh, in this blurry thing just enjoying following after me. You've got to get definitive and clear that I'm the Son of God and I'm the only way. It was either that or reject it because you're saying He's giving you this gross thing. Understand? They took it literally and they rejected Him because to them it was horrible and revolting. Now let me say something. If you take this literally, it really is horrible and revolting. Horrible and revolting to the last degree. It's... How else can we put it? It's cannibalism. You know, I read the stories of these missionaries that go to these islands, and they get off the boat, and they're told as they're dropped down in the water like John Patton was as he got off the ship, the captain said, listen, you may want to reconsider. Won't you take one last minute and reconsider? And he says, reconsider why? He says, reconsider that because the last people I dropped off on this island were eaten within hours, eaten by cannibals. And he said no, and he went. And he saw the cannibalism, he heard it, he heard their fights, he, he saw their wars, they ate each other, their fires burned, their barbecues, if I could put it that way, burned with the smell of human flesh, within a mile of his house on the beach. You see, to me that is revolting. So, these people took it literally and it was revolting to them. Now. Here is an interesting thing. As revolting as this was to these people, because even to think of the idea of, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood made them so sick. They couldn't stand it. To look at that, I'm shocked at that because of their blindness. But I'm even more shocked that millions of people since that time, not Jews, have come to believe that that is exactly the idea. And that what you do to obey Jesus here is you must eat his body and drink his blood. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, this is probably the highest point of profane absurdity 
which superstition has ever yet reached, to believe that such an act of, to put it another way, cannibalism, as could be implied by the literal eating of the flesh of Christ, could convey grace to the person guilty of such a horror. While we wonder that the Jews so misunderstood the Savior, we wonder a thousand times more that there are men who, instead of being staggered by such a thought as the Jews were, endeavor to defend such dreadful error even from Scripture, and actually consider it to be a vital doctrine of their faith. It's pretty heavy to contemplate. Why? Because millions of people do that. It is amazing to me with all of this in mind and having no animosity at all against the Catholic Church and knowing that so many of you grew up that way and not into Catholic bashing at all. Yet at the same time, I'm very concerned that there's almost an unwritten law. Never mention Catholics from the pulpit. It's almost an unwritten law. Because what happens is there's so many Catholics that there's bound and inevitably going to be many of them in church on any given church day, relatives sitting there, the fights will break out on the way home. It's almost an unwritten law. If you want your church to grow, don't mention Catholics. Mention anything else you want, you know, from a Protestant point of view, but don't mention Catholics. Well... <laughs> whatever. You know, I mean, from the very beginning, I I never liked preaching that avoided real issues. And I never have ever, and I still don't like preaching that holds the truth back from me. I felt cheated too many times. It's the truth that makes you free, you see. It's the loving thing to share the truth so people can be free. See, the Catholic Church takes these words literally. They take them literally. You see, they take these to be literal words and they, what they do is they apply them to the Lord's Supper so that they incorporate them really within the Mass in that sense. From the Catholic dogma point of view, taking these words literally takes place when communion is given at the Mass. Roman Catholics believe that the elements of communion the bread or the wafer and the cup, the wine or the grape juice, that the elements actually change, change when they're consecrated by the priest. So that they change from the substance of bread and wine actually, actually physically to the substance of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the teaching is. It teaches that when Jesus spoke the words at the Last Supper, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood. It teaches Catholic doctrine that he then turned the bread into his body and he then turned the wine into his blood. So that that's then exactly what they ate at the Last Supper. They literally ate, you see, his body and drank his blood. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. The Catholic Church interprets Jesus' words to mean, this has become my body, this has become my blood. The official name for this is transubstantiation. That's the official doctrinal name. It means actually that a substance is changed. So that in the case of the Mass, although the outward appearance 
As you look at it, it still looks like the bread and the wine. Wait for the wine. Although the outward appearance remains that of bread and wine, the idea of transubstantiation is that the real material or essential nature of it has been changed. So that even though it still looks the same, it's not the same. This is done for this reason, so that the priest can then sacrifice Christ on the altar. And the altar is effectively the table. It is what they refer to as an unbloody sacrifice. But it is one in which Christ is actually immolated or offered as a victim. The bread, the wafer, the communion wafer, is called the host. And this term comes from the Latin word for victim. The offering then of the host makes the satisfaction for the sins of the living and the dead. So they are offering the body of Christ. They're offering again the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. Those receiving then Holy Communion eat the body of Christ. Participation then is, of course, essential for spiritual life. And as you know, many of you, it is central, central to Catholic experience. And it is important to salvation. Now, depending on who you talk to, depending on what segments, you know, it's hard because Catholic Church absorbs their own dissidents. Those that want to leave get absorbed back in and sort of pacified. So depending on where you are, who you're talking to, you may or may not get pure Catholic doctrine. But the idea is that this literal eating of the body and drinking of the blood of Jesus is critical to salvation for a Catholic. And that is why a devout Catholic will not miss communion. It's an integral part of their salvation. It is essential for spiritual life. It is central to Catholic experience. This is the sacrifice of the Mass or the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist basically means thanksgiving. So listen to closely now to what I want to show you. The Jews who rejected Christ took these words literally because they took him on face value and didn't want to take him for what he really meant. They missed what he had to say and they were repulsed by taking them literally. The Catholic Church is not repulsed by taking them literally. They see it as something absolutely necessary to spiritual life and even to salvation as it's all mingled in there with some of the other sacraments. To me, this is so strange because they are acting out the very thing that was so repulsive to the Jew and seen in the mind of the Jew as cannibalism effectively that there's no problem with that at all in the mind of the person taking the Mass. Now you might say, you know, you're very cruel and inhumane and you are a Catholic basher. But I say again to you, I am not. Stop that. How dare you? I am not. And I want to be very clear on this. If you're thinking that, listening on the tape, radio, whatever, here. If you're thinking that, then I challenge you that you are caught in the web of the teaching woven through the fabric of your very being and you cannot listen to reason and look at Scripture and see what it really teaches because this is a part of you. But if you have really a heart for Christ and you listen to these things and contemplate them and come and read them again, you will find it won't be easy. But you will find you'll have to let it go and you'll want to let it go. You'll want to let it go. 
And I encourage you to do that. So what happens then is the very thing repulsive to the Jew is a thing that is embraced in the Mass with, of course, a different application. Now, follow these thoughts. Literally, and I'm saying to you, these words cannot be taken literally, but taken literally and then applied to communion, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, applied to that literally, I assert to you, there's no way these statements can be true. No way. Because, look at what Jesus says in John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, no way around this. It's for everybody and there's no way around it. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, what is the next thing? You have no life in you. There's no salvation unless you do this. Okay? Take it literally. Make it communion. And now I ask you, if that is true, what has happened to the countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of infants who died, of young children who died, who, if you take and look in the Bible reasonably and logically, you will conclude those children went to heaven, which in my opinion... As I look at the Bible and the elective purposes of God, that's to me the grace of God poured out on heathen nations where the gospel hasn't been heard. Tragically, so many young die so young, but wonderfully, they go to heaven before the age of accountability. So, if you're to say, take this literally, then what are you going to do with all those infants and children that died and went to heaven because now you have taken them out of heaven and put them in hell because they didn't have the opportunity to take communion. That, to me, is very heavy. How about another thought? How about the many that have proved their faith to be real where there's great fruit in their life but they haven't been able to partake of the Lord's table because of, say, banishment, you know, um, kicked out of their country, or how about this, thrown into prison under great persecution, come to the Lord in um, prison, come to the Lord in solitary confinement. People like that, and then they die, unable to take the Lord's table, come to the Lord's supper, go to Mass, whatever. What about all those people? when their faith was shown to be real. You see, if you take this literally, you've immediately got real problems. How about this? Two men dying by Christ. They're mocking Him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. One hears it and mocks on. The other hears it and says, Whoa! All of a sudden, no more mocking. It's, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And He turns and He says, I say to you, Well, this is fabulous. Boom! I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. You take this literally, hold it, stop everything. You're going to have to run up to the cross and say, Now, Lord, you're getting carried away here. We're going to have to have some communion here. (laughs) This guy's not going in. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. That's the word. You read John 6 and find out for yourself. You know, I mean, Jesus is the one who saves. He said, you will be with me today 
in paradise. So now you're going to have to take the children out of heaven, put them into hell. You're going to have to take those who came to the Lord in solitary confinement, banishment, prison, whatever, sickness, terminal sickness, and, and you're going to have to take those real Christians, take them out of heaven, put them into hell. Or, you know, if you carry it out, maybe, shall I utter it, purgatory. I mean, you're going to have to put them there. <laughs> I'm a dead man anyway after this message. What's the use now? So, <laughs> kind of feel like Stephen, you know. It's what, what's the use now? I mean, I might as well preach on. Anyway, so the thief on the cross. How about this? Many false brethren, let's just sort of turn it around now. Many false brethren have partaken, even regularly, of the Mass, of Communion, or the Protestant Church, Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, which is a whole other issue, where they go not so far as transubstantiation, where it physically becomes the body and the blood, but consubstantiation, which is sort of a waffling on, bless his name, Martin Luther's account, where he couldn't quite untangle himself from his own Catholic dogma, even though he left, you see? It's not easy. And he was a great man of God. I'm not standing here today saying, no Catholics are Christians. You may have thought I'm saying that, but if you'll notice, I have not said that. I'm not saying that. Many people in the Catholic Church are Christians, are going to heaven. And in their sincerity, they've found God. They've believed in the Christ that they're taught, even. And they have found God. But they're just simply still there because they haven't been really taught a lot. So I'm not saying that all Catholics are not Christians. I never said that. I am saying there's some severe problems here with some severe, severe error that would imply, unless it's this way, you can't go into heaven. Think of this. Many false brethren have partaken of the Eucharist and perished in their sins. In other words, they've left the Lord's table to follow after the table of demons. What about all those people that seem sincere for a while and then they're gone? What about all those people, you know, that sort of warm up to following Jesus and then they're just not into it anymore? It. That's always the big giveaway. What's the matter with you? You're so different now. I notice... You're even taking drugs you never took before. You're hanging around worse companions than you were before you made profession of faith in Christ. What's the matter with you? I'm not into it anymore. Listen, anybody that reduces my Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit and God the Father down to a neat package of low-level it, I assert to you, they never knew Him. Because to know Him is to love Him and even in your worst, backslidden, upside-down state of weakness, which you mourn over, you could never dream of calling Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, calling the Holy Trinity and Christianity it. What about those people? Many communion services. Well, if you take this literally, then because they have eaten the body and they have drank the blood, then they have life in them. So now what are you going to do with that? Now you're taking them off the path that leads to destruction. You're going to put them in heaven. So you've got everybody in the wrong place, you see. You've switched it all. So to come along and say, no, we take this literally, you can't. You just can't. 
You cannot and study your Bible and rightly divide it and come to that conclusion and you cannot keep that conclusion and I don't care if you've held it 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, you have to let it go and until you do, you'll never be free. Because my Jesus, the Bible says, died once. Once for all. Once for all. Never to be sacrificed again. Never again, once for all. And so I cannot accept that. I must reject that. This is not to be taken literally. So how do you take it then? Well, you have to take it symbolically. Symbolically. Look at John 6.53 again. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now you remember that morning I was wrestling with my coffee and I was in a mood, in a bad mood, and my wife came and was very angelic and just wanted a few twinkles from me, a little love, five minutes, let her know, and she turned me loose. You remember that morning? And I blew the whole thing very quickly because I read this to her and I said, I need to know the doctrine of it. And um, she said, oh, oh, don't you see? It ministers to me even now. It's oneness. It's oneness with Christ. It's an intimacy with God beyond anything we could have ever imagined as fallen human beings. Don't you see how warm it is? Don't you see it's, it's simply seeing His sacrifice on the cross and taking Him into your life? And of course, in my mood, I simply barked. You see, that's what it is. Now, I knew that already. But I figured I had to find some other things out, you know, to make it more heavy. You see, when he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he already said, unless you eat the bread. Before that, he simply said, I am the way. If you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. He went from that to bread to flesh and blood. But they're all saying the same thing, you see. So he says... In verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Working off the idea that bread is a staff of life and you must eat of it if you're to live. If you want to live spiritually, you must eat of the bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. And then this. I'm the living bread, 51, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I, notice, shall give, shall give, is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about giving his life on the cross. He talks in this passage about his death. What does it mean? He's speaking symbolically of His cross and taking His life into you. You have to understand this. And for some of you, it's basic. For others, you've been waiting a while to get untangled. It dawned on me that if you make the transition out of deep Catholicism into not Protestantism, not any other ism, but into Christ, into a baggage-free, tradition-free, simple, Christ-central, God-honoring Christian life, if you make the transition, there's probably a, a long season of untangling where issues are not specifically addressed, and you may be wondering and wondering and wondering even for years 
And all you know is that your heart is right, but you're still wondering. For the sake of those that are in that place, Jesus often spoke symbolically. It's part of his style. For example, right here, I am the bread of life. How about this? I am the light of the world. Was Jesus a light bulb? As he stood there talking, was he just a light bulb beaming on and off, you know, twinkling like a Christmas bulb? I am the door. Was there a big door standing there? Arms, legs, you know, face maybe embossed into the door. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Did he have sheep behind him? Was he standing there with his staff, you know? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. How about this one? I am the true vine. Did he suddenly turn into a, a big thing of grapes? I know you're in there, Lord. This is a big grapevine. I mean, come on. He spoke symbolically. All these things are figurative. They're symbolic. And even the last two were spoken at the Last Supper in the upper room. Other times he referred to his body as a temple. Of course, the Jews misunderstood that. They thought he meant the building. He spoke of new life as living water. Did the woman at the well understand that? No, she wants a bucket. I mean, all these people... They listen, they listen. It's just not a clue. He spoke of his disciples as salt. Salt. Imagine. Lord, couldn't you think of something a little more glorious than salt? He spoke of the Pharisees teaching as leaven. Appropriate. But you see, these things are symbolical. They're figurative. You read in Matthew all these things. Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. He did not speak to them without a parable. A parable is comparing one thing with something else. And it's figurative language. That isn't to say that everything Jesus said was figurative, because it wasn't. But you you take the context, the, the context you find these things in, and you interpret what he's saying by the context. You know, you look at the the night of the Last Supper in John 13 all the way through 17, and, and you see all the events, and you listen to the speech, you listen to the talk of Jesus. So much of it is figurative. For example, he takes the cup, he says, This cup, this cup right here, is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. What? The cup? What is this, Lord? A cup? What, this is a, this is new, we've come all this way for this? A mug? You know, I mean, this is the new covenant? This? What, we all buy a mug or something? We put our face on it? What? The cup? No. It's figurative. He passes the cup. The wine is in the cup. The wine is symbolic of his blood. The cup holding the blood, symbolic, is the institution of the new covenant. The old Passover they've done for years, remembering the departure from Egypt is replaced. And he fulfills it all. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. How about this? For as often he said, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now surely we don't drink the cup. Now my son, he eats the seeds inside the apple. He's chewing away on the apple, looking normal. You know, he's eating, eating, and all of a sudden I hear these funny noises, you know, and I hear this weird crunch. And I turn around, and he's just nonchalantly biting into the seeds and the core. You know all that stuff in the middle? I know, there's a couple of you here. I see you. It's weird. You don't eat the middle of it. And you don't drink the cup. You know, 
Come on. I mean, there has to be a sense of being reasonable with these things. And yet how funny it is that if you get the organization big enough, if you get the outfits splendid enough, if you could use that term, if you get them glorious, there's a lot of people that are very moved by all of that pomp, that all the incense, all the, you know, the stained glass, the, the robes, and, and, you know, quite sincerely, people have said in here, uh, you know, when I first came, I'm all right now, but when I first came, I, I could barely sit still in the service. I, surely there's one stained glass window here, you know. Surely there's one incense container. Maybe someday, at least for the beginning of the service, you'd show up in a robe or something, or at least one pointed hat. I Come on, let me feel like I'm worshiping God. And they're sincere. They mean it. You see, I didn't grow up with any of that. And it has never meant anything. And there's another thing I want to say. I forgot to say it a minute ago. I was heading toward it. You know, if you think these things are cruel, I had a discussion with a non-Christian today, a very progressive, successful individual. And just to do a little quick survey, I bounced some of these ideas off. I said, what do you think about, you ever been to a Catholic Mass? He said, yes. I said, what do you think about eating the body and drinking the blood? He said, transubstantiation. This man is not a Christian, he's not a Catholic, he's not, not any of these things. Yeah, he said, the body... The, the bread really becomes the body and the juice really becomes the blood. I've been there a number of times with friends. I said, what do you think about it? He said, just between you and me, it's like cannibalism. I mean, of all the things that I've heard, it makes no sense to me at all. It's the most confusing. So I say that to tell you this. Whatever you may think on the inside brought up within it where it's normal to you, it's not normal to the rest of the world. It isn't normal. And if that will help, even if it hurts a little bit along the way, then it must be. Now then, how does all of this apply to communion? Well, let me say directly, chapter 6 of John does not apply to communion. Not directly. Chapter 6 of John, unless you eat my body, drink my blood, that applies not directly to communion, but where? Directly to his body broken on the cross, his blood shed on the cross. Unless you embrace what I do with my body and my blood at the cross, you don't have eternal life. You can't. It applies directly to that. Another thing, there was no Last Supper yet in John 6. So if you want to apply John 6 to the Last Supper, to the Lord's Supper, you have to do it indirectly. It's really not speaking of that directly. When you get to the Last Supper and then talk about what it all means with today for us in communion, these things are symbols. The bread and the wine, they're symbols. They are to be exactly what Jesus said, reminders. Reminders. Do this often, what do you say? In remembrance of me. There's no mention of sacrifice in that sense. Even when he passes the bread around, this is my body, he even qualifies it by calling the substance bread. Even when he passes the cup around, he qualifies it by calling it the fruit of the vine. So these things are symbolic to remember him, to thank and to praise him for what he did on the cross for us. Very important to understand that. So that's the understanding of our Lord's invitation here. Now let's just very quickly go through some things here and we'll be done. 
as it relates to responding to all of this. If you look at this, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. First thing here, in terms of response, is that if you want to have eternal life, you have to believe that the man Jesus Christ existed historically. He's not a myth. He's not somebody's imagination. You must believe He existed historically. He had flesh and He had blood. Secondly, you must believe, to respond to this statement properly and all around it, all those statements around it, you have to believe in the incarnation of God as man, flesh and blood. And the fact that He became man, God became man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when He did, He was 100% God and He was 100% man. You not only believe in the historic Jesus to respond properly to this, you believe in the incarnation of God as man. God became a man, flesh and blood, and remained God as He was 100% man. You cannot be saved if you don't believe that. This is not a little of Jesus and a little of your ideas as you follow along loosely after Him. You must come His way. A third thought, not only to believe that He historically existed in the incarnation of God as man, but if you look at this, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, to drink the blood it must flow. And so this is obviously a reference to the cross. You have to believe He died. As a man, as God, He died for your sins and rose again. Verse 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, down from heaven, deity, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, humanity, which I shall give for the life of the world, his death. If you're to appropriate his death for yourself personally, then you look at verse 53 and he says, Most assuredly I say to who? What does it say? Most assuredly I say to who? You. And then he says, unless you. You see, if you want the eternal life he invites you to, then you must appropriate it. Yes, you have to believe he existed. Yes, you have to believe he was God. Yes, you have to believe he was man and then he died and rose again. But it isn't enough just to believe it. The devils believe and tremble. How do I eat his body and drink his blood? I have to appropriate him. I have to, like I do with food, receive Him in. I have to assimilate into me, into my life, into my spirit, and my heart, all that He did for me at the cross. And until I do that, it doesn't matter how many trips I take to the Lord's table. It doesn't matter how many tears fall in a religious ceremony. Frankly, it doesn't matter if I've been baptized in water. And it doesn't matter if I grew up in a Christian home. And it doesn't matter if I was confirmed or if I was an altar boy or any of that. Until I take Him into me, I do not have His life. And so I must appropriate His death for me personally and receive His life into my soul. Look at verse 53. He says, Until I do, I have no life in me. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
And so you come out of death into life. It's a brand new life. That's what it is to eat his body and drink his blood. And it is then to find abundant life in your soul. You know why? Because he alone can satisfy And he is so careful. This is an invitation. He is so careful to say, look, to this crowd that simply walks away after his invitation to all of this. He says in verse 55, for my flesh is what? Food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. If you want to be satisfied, if you want to know life, and I cannot bear the thought of passing through this world in this brief lifetime and not knowing the fullness of it. How could you live like that? How could you be satisfied to be a drunk day in, day out? Work a job, come home, drink, watch a TV, channel, surf, whatever, and then go to bed, get up, all over, you know. And when the morning light comes streaming in, I get up and do it again. Like Jackson Brown saying, who wants to live like that? You know, I believe we were intended to live a full, exciting life. And that is why you must come to him, take him in, because his flesh is food indeed, his blood is drink indeed, and there is nothing so nourishing as to come and to contemplate him at the cross. And you know the great thing about this. In verse 57, he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. The life of God the Father flowing through God the Son right down into your life. And he who feeds on me will live because of me. Notice, feeds. He wants you to keep coming. Now you and I know that there are some areas of life and eating where you can do such a thing as eat too much, right? Any, anybody ever done that? Do you know the feeling of eating too much? Where your stomach hurts and you keep eating. You think, well, maybe a little 7-Up will, you know, make way for some more. There is a sense in which you kept eating, kept eating. It could be sinful, you know? I'm not condemning anyone here. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. But, it, but think of this. There, there is a very real thing being taught here by the Lord that you could never eat too much in coming to Jesus. That, there, that you can never come to the point where He's going to say, haven't you had enough? Go away and rest a while. Come back at 6 o'clock when it's dinner time. No, there's a sense in which you can never come and partake of too much And to hear that, he who feeds on me will live because of me, because you keep coming, because you keep feeding. I can't imagine living a meaningless, aimless, casual life, loosely following Christ, not making any contribution, not being part of any action, any team. I can't imagine living like that and not being pressed in with your warfare to feed more on Christ, to gain your strength, to find His strength and your weakness, go back out to the battle, just ready to fight. I can't imagine living any other way. He who feeds on me will live because of me. You have abundant life because you have union with God. You can never feed on Him too much. And the last thought is because you live with an ever-increasing hope. John 6.58, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats of this bread will live forever. These things He said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. 
And don't ever forget that when it was all said and done, he told Capernaum it would be worse in the judgment for them because they heard these things. Then it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of that. Worse for them because they heard this straight teaching than it would be for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment. That puts some real weight on these words to my soul. So I look at this, and I understand he's speaking symbolically, but I understand he's talking about dying on the cross for me in my place. And then after all of that, bearing my punishment, after all of that, turning right back around and saying, not only do I forgive you, but I offer everything I am to you, that you might truly know life, might have eternal life, with an ever-increasing hope all along the way. My hope is burning brighter now than it was 10 years ago. It's burning brighter than it was 20 years ago. Because the more I travel the pilgrim's road, the more I learn, the more I find my God to be true, that He is strong in my weakness. He even likes showing His strength in my weakness. He delights when I discover it, and I'm amazed and say, God, I can't believe this, but look what you did. And I look back and, Lord, there's no other explanation for this than you. And then along the way, my hope burns brighter and brighter because I've seen so many promises true here. Now, all those things that, that, I, that I see through a glass darkly in heaven, you know, like the trees of life along the, you know, river of crystal that flows out in the golden streets. And all, you know, you're wondering, is it really healing of the nations? Is it really 12 fruits? I mean, what is it, like an orange or a pear? I mean, all these things that I wonder about, they become more and more sure to me in whatever final appearance they will bring and all that because I know His promises are true now. I believe there's pearly gates. I believe there's a rainbow around this throne. I believe that the Son of God will light the city. I believe it's 1,500 miles long, wide, and high. And all those things. I believe it all. And that's just the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. We have an ever-increasing hope. Well, people are crumbling all around us in a world without hope, incurable diseases, viruses that have survived all the antibiotics, mutated and gone on now to be indestructible so that all the old diseases are coming back. This is a crazy, hopeless world. In the middle of it all, for you, for me, as a Christian, my hope is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And there is a world coming mm, that's going to be absolutely wonderful. And in the meantime, I have Him every day of my life. Do you have Him? Or has it just been ceremony, sacrament, whatever? If you don't have Him, open your heart right where you are. I never walked an aisle. I never prayed a prayer in a prayer room. I opened my heart to Jesus. That's how I personally found Christ. Because you know something, and I'm not against those things. If you want to come to the prayer room and pray, if you want to come up here and pray with me after a wonderful, glorious, glory to God, hallelujah, praise you, Lord, thank you, Jesus. It's well beyond all need. You know, if you want to do that, you come. But the important thing is you open your heart and you connect with Him and ask for His life to come into your soul, His forgiveness for you. And He will come. And He will bring all that He brings as God. 
and as one who loves you more than anyone else in this world. You let him in. He won't let you down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that truly you are the bread of life and that we can come and feed upon you. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you, Lord, for making it narrow, for making it your way and not ours, because that is the only sure way. Lord, continue to draw us all, that we may run after you and be brought into the inward chambers of your glory and your love, to enjoy a life that is impossible to anyone who doesn't know you, but so blessed, getting better and better as the days go by for those of us who do. We do thank you. We do praise you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.